Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast that will explore ways to preserve harmony and to prevent harmful conflict in valued relationships, and also ways to resolve conflict effectively and to restore harmony if damaging conflict should occur. We will delve into specific tips to manage conflict in life and into much broader topics touching on conflict, actual and potential, good and bad, in the world around us. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Susan Schoenfeld to take a hard look at the soft, that is, human, issues. Some listeners know Susan well, others know about her, and still others may be unfamiliar with some of the terms she uses. If one is new to you, please take a look in the notes to today's episode, where I have spelled out a couple of them. Hello, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you, Jane. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation because you have a combination of perspectives based on your past experiences and education. Tell us a little bit about what those have involved and how you have come to where you are today professionally. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. So I am a former practicing trust and estates lawyer and CPA and also have an MBA. So I'm no stranger to the world of conflict, especially within families, whether it's conflict between the generations or between siblings or cousins in the same generation. After leaving trust and estates law, I ran the trust administration department for 14 years at a white shoe, ultra high net worth trust company. And then I was family ambassador for a $600 million single family office. And then more than six years ago, I left the corporate world to launch my consulting firm, Wealth Legacy Advisors, which is based in New York City and serves as a thought partner to families of wealth and a public speaker to the financial services industry who serves them or wants to, on the human issues that keep families of wealth up at night. Legacy, governance, stewardship, succession, philanthropy, and managing fiduciary risk. Whether it's facilitating family meetings to talk about how the wealth impacts the family or family business, or how to raise children in an atmosphere of wealth, or even how to dip your toe in philanthropy without becoming a magnet for grant seekers. My passion is helping families and their provider organizations with the tools to take them to their full potential. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, given you had so much great experience in more institutional settings, why did you decide that you wanted to go out on your own? Oh, that's a great question. And, it, and it's a very personal human interaction that, that led me to it. There was one day I was sitting in a conference room at my former employer, and you can actually visualize the room. It was mahogany, mahogany conference table and wood paneled walls and thick carpeting and this lovely husband and wife couple who had just sold their company and had an enormous liquidity event was ushered in to talk about wealth management and to become a prospective client. And I was sitting there watching as 
everyone was talking to the husband about their taxes and their investment performance and all the hard techniques. And no one was engaging the wife. And I leaned across the table to her and I asked her what kept her up at night. What she said to me really changed my perception of how families of wealth really want to be served. What she said to me was, you know, all of those things that they're talking to my husband about are things I'm interested in too. Because while my husband was building his widget company, who do you think was the one paying the bills and managing the household and managing the investments and the taxes and all of those things? I was doing all of that. But what really keeps me up at night are my two teenage sons. She said, we live in a small town and everybody knows that we just hit it big. And my two teenage sons are suddenly the most popular kids in school. Oh boy. And they could use some guidance on how to handle this newfound popularity. And she said, I'm new to this wealth too. I could use some guidance on how to help them deal with these issues. And I started talking to more clients and colleagues and other people in the field. And I realized that what keeps clients of wealth up at night is not their investments unless something is really going on in the markets enormous volatility. And it's not their taxes unless they just got a letter from the IRS. What keeps people up at night is how do I raise my children in an atmosphere of wealth and have them grow up to be productive, contributing members of society? How do I do that in a way that is intelligent and thoughtful and considered and really serves what my family's values are? And that influenced my life's work. And that really influenced me to leave the trust company, to join that single family office, and ultimately to launch Wealth Legacy Advisors. Very interesting. And so human, as you say. I think some folks who were not involved in that world professionally or personally can have a vision that if you have buckets of money, you have nothing to worry about. How could you worry about anything? But it sounds to me as if you're focusing on the human worries and the human interactions that any family can face. It's very true, Jean. Um, It's been said that wealth is a multiplier. The bigger your balance sheet, it doesn't mean that you have smaller problems. It just means that the family dynamics issues are amplified because everyone is scrambling for a piece of that pie. Very often, the work that I do is described by the wealth managers of the world as the soft issues. And I think that's a derogatory term and really minimizes just how important these issues are and actually how hard these issues are. And so I don't call them the soft issues. I call them the human issues. And that's a very considered way that I like to view that. I have to wonder sometimes, I've heard that, and I wonder sometimes whether the folks who will use that terminology, if you will, are the ones who are the least likely to want to be involved in that. It's frightening. I don't know how to help the client. I don't want to hear about that. And therefore, I'm going to maybe consciously, maybe not use a way to dismiss that a bit. That's not the important part. You're certainly preaching to the choir there, Jean. (laughs) It is my belief that the wealth management firms and the consultants and advisors who want to serve families of wealth, who really 
understand and show the clients that they care about them as a family and care about them as people and not just assets under management are the ones who are going to attract and retain those clients. If all you're competing on is performance, then that's all the clients are going to value. And they will chase performance down the block to the next firm if they're a quarter of a point better than you were last year. So if you live and die on your investment performance or on your product offerings, I think you're missing the boat. Understood. Susan, tell us, because you have an unusual background, and an unusually broad background in terms of education and experience, how do you think that affects your perspective on these sorts of issues? Many people think that family business consulting or family dynamics consulting requires a mental health background, whether it's a psychology degree or years of practice in in the mental health space. And I think that is an incredibly valuable background in this space. But by definition, it is a very, very different skill set than the one that I bring. Very often, I get brought into family systems situations where there is some business transactional element. Either it is a transaction that they're trying to get done within the family business that is just not happening because the family dynamics are dysfunctional or less than optimally functional, or there is an impending sale or some other thing. I'm working with a family now that came to me because of a proposed transaction within the family business that was thwarted because the siblings aren't communicating in a healthy way. And I'm working with them now in order to help guide them toward a healthier way to to communicate with each other. It was actually quite lovely. We had a family meeting about a month or two ago. And it turned out that the sibling that everyone had villainized and thought was the troublemaker was actually on their side. And they've since told me that even in, in... the matter of weeks since we've had the family meeting, they are communicating better. The transaction itself still hasn't happened because of other factors, but the way they communicate with each other and the way they feel about each other has transformed as a result of having a neutral third party in the room who can help ask the right questions and then be quiet and just listen to the conversation and guide it along in a thoughtful, considered, professional way. May I hazard a guess, Susan, that that is extremely rewarding for you? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) When this family had a spontaneous group hug at the end of the family meeting, that was really just, as I said, spontaneous. It was one of those things where one of the family members got very emotional and and they all gathered around and supported her. It it was so heartwarming and it's ultimately the reason I do what I do. I love those moments. My measure of success in this business is, did I leave a situation better than I found it? And if the answer is yes, even if it's not all the way to whatever the end goal is, that's a good day. Very good. Very good day. I heard a word, one of my favorites, mentioned a couple of times, and that would be 
communication. I'm going to ask you to talk to us a little bit about the phrase I found on your website. I believe it's underneath one of your videos. And it is this, the answer is communication, not control. That is really one of my big mottos. We all know the three rules of real estate, which are location, location, location. Well, the three rules in wealth and family estate planning and family trust planning and family intergenerational planning are control, control, control. The proverbial hand from the grave is prevalent where the wealth creator or even the inheritors who are setting things up for their descendants want to control the behavior of their succeeding generations through structures they create. And ultimately what happens is there's a failure to communicate. My favorite quote, on the topic of communication comes from George Bernard Shaw, who famously said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Very good. And I think that's profound because so many parents don't talk to their children about the wealth. They don't talk to their grandchildren about the wealth. They think it's gauche to talk about they think it is something that we don't discuss in our family. And ultimately what they are doing is harming their children by denying them the opportunity to learn, for the opportunity to practice managing their managers, practice living with the wealth, practice just knowing the full extent of who they are as a family. And I have seen too many times where upon a parent's passing, an adult child will say to me, my parents never trusted me. They never told me the extent of the wealth. They never told me the extent of the family business interests that I was going to have to take over and manage. They never shared with me the details of ultimately who we are as a family. And it is heartbreaking to see that. The other part of communication that I think is critical is in the communication of the family estate plan to the children. Yes. And I'm not talking about communicating the dollars and cents, as in when I die, you're going to get X million dollars, but more about communicating the expectations so that your children and grandchildren can manage their lives in a more effective manner. And I've had families say to me or, or clients say to me, if I only knew that when my parents eventually passed, I was going to have this much or this little, I might have made different decisions in my life. Perhaps I would have bought a different home or gone into a different career or any number of things. If I knew I was going to be as wealthy as I am, maybe I would have gone into a more rewarding career that was more emotionally rewarding to me and perhaps less financially rewarding. Or if I knew that I was not going to get as much as I thought I was, then maybe I wouldn't have bought the expensive home that I did. And those are one type of communication that is so critical. Another type of communication that's very important in the 
estate planning arena or and even broader than estate planning, but really wealth succession, wealth transfer arena, is when as the senior generation, you, for very valid reasons, are planning on treating your children unequally or inequitably. So one reason might be a family where one child is a volunteer for charity and builds homes with with Habitat for Humanity, and their other child is a hedge fund manager and lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, and, and has enormous wealth. Well, that child certainly doesn't need their parents' wealth, and in fact is probably seeking out creditor protection type things. And the last thing they want is to get more wealth. But what ends up happening is mom and dad say, well, your other sibling needs the money more than you do, and not actually communicating that with their children. It happens, but isn't explained. They make those decisions. Yeah. I think that's absolutely fascinating to me, Susan. I know the sort of thing you're describing, and I think it ties in well With a person who describes upon the death of mom and dad, they didn't trust me, and that's why they didn't tell me, this idea of, if I haven't heard a reason for why these decisions were made, whether I would agree with it or not, I will come up with a reason. In that case, they didn't trust me. And here, you I'm sure have heard things, maybe not the same things I have, but one I've heard is, oh, so you punished me because I was financially successful. Exactly. I don't think that was going through mom and dad's head, but what happens when they say nothing? Mm -hmm. Well, exactly right, Jane, because while you're alive, you're the referee. And if your children have heard it firsthand from you, they're less likely not only to challenge it later, but less likely to blame their siblings together. So so let me give you an example of, of a situation that I I worked with, two sisters, let's call them Annie and Mary. And when the parents were deciding on their wills, the two sisters were in very different situations. Annie was a successful businesswoman, had married a man who was even more successful, and financially she was all set. Her sister, on the other hand, was in a different situation because of lifelong illnesses. She never had a career and really was was not financially well off. And when the parents died, both sisters were, were shocked to find out that the parents had left every penny to marry the one who had lifelong illnesses. And just like you said, Jane, when when you look at it from the outside, you would assume that the parents did that for the simple reason that she needed the money. But the wealthier sister felt like her parents didn't love her. And she felt devalued. She felt depressed. She felt unloved. And it, it wasn't that she needed the money, but rather it was the symbolism behind the money that kept eating at her. And as so often happens, the money symbolized love and approval and support and caring, and she had been completely cut out. And ultimately, it caused an awful rift between Uh the sisters. They never spoke again. And ultimately, a truly tragic situation got even worse because this, this sister who had inherited the money from her parents, who had lifelong illnesses, died about a year later. 
Oh. And she left everything to a distant cousin instead of to her sister. Oh, my goodness. So now this one sister who had been cut out of her parents' will saw all of her parents' wealth and all that that symbolized going to a distant cousin. So not only had she lost her sister, she had to live with knowing that their rift was, was now never undone. And ultimately, the message that I take away from this, it, and I counsel people all the time, is that bequests are messages from those no longer here. So make sure you convey the message that you intend. Yes. If only their parents had explained what they meant, this tragedy might have been avoided. Ah, absolutely. And certainly, these parents did not want the result that came about of these two not speaking to each other for the rest of their lives together, which was not that long, but how very sad. It it was a a truly sad story and a cautionary tale. Yes. I'm interested in this idea of communication and control and turning it on its head or mirrored or backwards or one of those many things, which is, I think sometimes parents have the perspective of, if I tell my adult children, and sometimes they're quite well into adulthood, anything about the plans we are making, that somehow allows them to decide. That's not the sort of communication and control that you were talking about at first, but I think this idea of informing them is not the same as giving them the power to make the decision for you. That is very true. I am always a proponent of communication. I think that particularly in the wealth space, there isn't nearly enough of it. And it doesn't necessarily mean completely opening the kimono. It doesn't mean bearing your balance sheet in an inappropriate fashion to your family members, your your descendants. And it certainly doesn't mean handing over the keys and giving them the right to make decisions for you if that's not what you're willing to do and it's not where you are in your development as a family or a family office. But what it does mean is not leaving them in the dark, not leaving them without the tools to run their own lives, to do their own family financial planning, to to understand what the expectations are. I think it's very foolish not to provide them with those tools. And takes away their agency in a sense, because they just don't know. They don't know what they should be planning for because they don't know what the circumstances are likely to be. Exactly. Very interesting. And I think we've had a chance to touch on a few things, but I would encourage listeners to take a look at Susan's website where there's much more. And she goes into some depth about some of these ideas and others that we haven't had a chance to touch on. But I would like to just come back to this idea of communication. What would you say is the best way for a family to get started before there is trouble? The very best way is to start while they're young. So they're, uh, while your children are young. So there is no one magic age to suddenly say, okay, we're going to sit down and have the money talk. That conversation doesn't work. First of all, it's very scary to sit down and have a big money talk with the family. In fact, I often say that families would rather have the sex talk with their kids than the money talk. (laughs) It is a very scary thing to do. 
But if you find age-appropriate ways to talk to your kids, sometimes when they're sitting in the back of the car for carpool or you're online at the supermarket and you find an opportunity to talk about why you chose this brand and not that brand, or if you have a family office, you can bring them to the family office and create an educational opportunity or you can, depending on their age, you can bring them along when you meet with your wealth manager. Sometimes I see families create philanthropic vehicles as a means to educate the next generation without bearing the family's balance sheet to their children. There are many, many ways to start the conversation, but the key is to start and not to think of it as a one and done because as in so many aspects of parenting, there is no such thing as one and done. It is an ongoing process. And the sooner you start, the sooner you start. So my three keys are start while you're young, model your behavior, because whether you realize it or not, your children are watching what you do as much or more than they're listening to what you say. And my third key is to find teachable moments. Because as I said, whether it's online at the supermarket or in any, any other often inopportune moment, that's <laughs> when those teachable moments tend to come up. So grab that opportunity when it presents itself. Exactly. Well, Susan, it has been great fun to talk with you. And I appreciate some of the stories that you've shared with us because they truly illustrate What's going on behind the concepts? This is how it plays out in real life sometimes. Susan, where would people be able to find you if they wanted to learn more about your work? Ah, thank you for asking. So the website for my firm, Wealth Legacy Advisors, is WLALLC.com, as in Wealth Legacy Advisors, LLC. So it's WLALLC.com is my consulting website. I also have a website for my public speaking, and that is SusanSchoenfeld.com, S-U-S-A-N-S-C-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D.com. I will, of course, put those websites in the show notes for folks who want to click through and find that information. And I'll say thank you again, Susan, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please subscribe through one of the major apps. You can also find the show on the web by searching for Crafting Solutions to Conflict. For those of you who are new to listening to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing to podcasts is free. Comments or ideas about the podcast? Let me know at jb, as in my initials, at dovetailresolutions.com. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.